This week, CPUC expands scope of fire investigation to include PG&E's actions related to campfire. Acosta files for Chapter 11. Chesapeake launches multi-part exchange transaction. More on all this and, as always, updates from Puerto Rico. Welcome to the week in Reorg. Hello, and welcome to the Reorg podcast, where we bring you the latest top developments in high yield, distressed debt, and bankruptcy. I'm Raksha Manjanath. And I'm Karen Lung. Later this episode, Reorg Covenant's head Peter Washkowitz discusses covenant trends in U.S. high yield issuances. It's Sunday, December 8th. Judge Dennis Montali took under advisement the PG&E debtors' motion to approve their restructuring support agreement and settlement with the ad hoc group of subrogation claimants. Arguments at the hearing were presented by various parties and interest, including the debtors, equity holders, subrogation claimants, the Official Committee of Tort Claimants, or TCC, the Office of California Governor Gavin Newsom, the ad hoc group of senior unsecured note holders, and the Adventist health claimants. No fewer than 16 mayors joined the coalition of Northern California mayors and local officials seeking to remake PG&E as a power cooperative in the past month, according to a list released this week, bringing the coalition's total of 114 elected officials representing 58 cities and 10 counties. According to a set of operating principles released, the reorganized entity would, quote, not seek to sever any geographic portion of the current PG&E service area, nor would it alter the current balance of rate allocation between urban and rural customers, the group stated. The California Public Utilities Commission, or CPUC, issued a second amended scoping memorandum and ruling in connection with its June 27th order instituting a formal investigation. The amended memorandum, which includes five additional areas of questioning, expanded the scope of its investigation into whether PG&E violated applicable rules or requirements relating to the, quote, maintenance and operation of its electric facilities that were involved in igniting fires in its service territory in 2017, to also consider all violations associated with the 2018 and 2017 wildfires in PG&E's service area. Relatedly, following publication of a report detailing findings in connection with the campfire, PG&E filed a response to an order from Judge Alsup stating that in regards to the quote failed sea hook on the incident tower, PG&E quote does not object to providing unredacted versions of the requested photographs. The utility added that while at the time of the filing, the Butte County District Attorney objections to a public filing of an unredacted copy of Figure 9, PG&E would seek to determine whether it possesses a version of the image, quote, in a manner that would permit provision to the court and would update the court to the extent it is able to do so. In a series of press releases Wednesday morning, Chesapeake Energy announced an offer to exchange certain of its unsecured notes for $1.5 billion of new second lien notes and a proposed new $1.5 billion first lien last out secure term loan. Proceeds from the $1.5 billion term loan would fund a cash tender offer and consent solicitation for Chesapeake's Brazos Valley 2025 notes and would fund the retirement of the Brazos Revolver. 
Finally, the company disclosed entry into an amendment to its credit agreement to allow for the issuance of the $1.5 billion first lien term loan, among other changes. Specific to the notes at Brazos, Chesapeake commenced a cash tender offer on behalf of wholly owned subsidiaries Brazos Valley Longhorn LLC and Brazos Valley Longhorn Finance Corporation. Brazos Valley to purchase for cash any and all of Brazos's outstanding 6.875% senior notes to 2025 for total consideration of 97 cents, including a five-point early tender premium. The company stated that it expects a new issuance and redemption of the Brazos Valley unsecured notes and retirement of the Brazos Valley revolver, quote, to improve Chesapeake's financial flexibility as they will allow Brazos Valley and its subsidiaries to support Chesapeake's current and future debt. Under Chesapeake's debt documents, Brazos Valley and its subsidiaries are unrestricted subsidiaries. To the extent Chesapeake transferred assets to Brazos Valley, Brazos Valley would not be restricted from raising debt secured by those transferred assets and using the proceeds to purchase Chesapeake's outstanding senior notes in the open market. We had previously published an article stating that although Chesapeake has flexibility to transfer assets to Brazos Valley, Brazos Valley's revolver and notes provided it with limited ability to purchase Chesapeake's debt. Following the retirement of Brazos Valley's revolver and assuming the consent solicitation is consummated, Brazos Valley's ability to purchase Chesapeake's debt would no longer be limited. Please ask your salesperson if you would like a copy of that report. As anticipated, Acosta Inc., a Jacksonville, Florida-based, quote, multinational full-service sales, marketing, and retail merchandising agency and Carlisle Group portfolio company and its affiliates filed petition last week in the U.S. Bankruptcy Court for the District of Delaware. At a largely uncontested first-day hearing Tuesday in front of Judge Christopher Sanchi, the Acosta debtors received all requested relief, including interim approval of a $150 million term dip facility, all of which would be immediately available. Judge Sanchi also entered an order scheduling a hearing on confirmation of the debtors' prepackaged plan for December 16th. According to counsel for the debtors, as of the first day hearing, every holder of the first lien and senior unsecured notes claims to submit a ballot had accepted the plan, which generally leaves other creditors unimpaired. With respect to the accelerated confirmation timeline, Judge Sanchi said it was his, quote, first experience with the new trend of prepackaged cases contemplating confirmation soon after filing. In approving the early confirmation hearing in this case, the judge described it as, quote, highly significant that all creditors to vote prior to the petition date voted to accept and no objections were presented at the hearing. Quote, in prepackaged cases, I'm usually looking for the person that got the short end of the stick, he added. But this is not that kind of case. The restructuring was not entirely drama-free. According to the debtors' counsel, the proposed plan resolves a substantial pre-solicitation dispute between a first-in lender group, including Davidson Kempner and Nexus Capital, and a crossover first-in note holder group, including Elliott Management and Oak Tree Capital, with the crossover group indicating it was ready to litigate in bankruptcy court over the validity of liens on post-petition contracts with customers. 
However, the debtors convinced both sides that a prolonged litigation over the issue would not be, quote, worth the pain the company would suffer, and the group settled on an 85-15 split of new equity under the plan, counsel stated. Turning to the island of Puerto Rico, on Thursday, Judge Laura Taylor Swain entered an opinion and order granting the PROMESA Oversight Board's motion to dismiss counts one and two and stay count three of the complaint filed by the autonomous municipality of San Juan in connection with the adversary proceeding, challenging the Oversight Board's designation of San Juan as a covered entity under PROMESA. Quote, Section 108 of PROMESA precludes plaintiffs from invoking federal common law to challenge the Oversight Board's exercise of its authority to designate covered territorial instrumentalities, the opinion states. In addition to finding that count one of the complaint fails to state a claim, the judge determined that San Juan failed to state a claim upon which relief can be granted under count two, which challenged the grant of authority to the Oversight Board to designate San Juan as a covered instrumentality under the non-delegation doctrine. The court stayed count three in light of the Supreme Court's consideration of the Appointments Clause challenge to the validity of the Oversight Board, which arises out of the Aurelius decision from the U.S. Court of Appeals for the First Circuit. Speaking of the First Circuit, on Wednesday, the First Circuit reserved decision after hearing oral argument by the bondholders of the Employees Retirement System, or ERS, the PROMESA Oversight Board, as the Title III representative of ERS, and the Official Committee of Retired Employees of the Commonwealth of Puerto Rico. This was in the consolidated appeal of Judge Swain's opinion and order in the ERS bondholder litigation addressing the applicability of Section 552 of the Bankruptcy Code to post-petition revenue. The court did not provide an indication as to the expected timing of its ruling. And at a Thursday press conference, Democrat David E. Price, chairman of the House Appropriations, Transportation, and Housing and Urban Development and Related Agencies Subcommittee, stated that unless immediate action is taken, the U.S. Congress will have to consider taking court action or seek to employ the appropriations process to compel the U.S. Department of Housing and Urban Development to comply with a congressional directive to issue mitigation notices that would start the process for Puerto Rico to gain access to some $10.2 billion in disaster relief funding that Congress has authorized. That is clearly an option we will have to consider, Price said. Other top stories last week were 1. KKR proposes non-binding recapitalization transaction to quorum board including take private transaction and equitization of senior notes. 2. Improvements in harsh environment, moored and jack-up day rates provide signs of hope for rig contractors, but short-term contracts remain cause for concern as maturity wall looms. 3. New York judge dismisses state's opioid marketing claims against Teva, Malincrot, Endo parent entities. State voluntarily dismisses similar claims against allergen parent without prejudice. And, as always, here's Jim Holloway with the week ahead. 
Well, thank you, Rockshin. Hello, everyone. And while I wish I could bring tidings of a light calendar and time to catch one's breath after a hectic year, alas, tis not to be. Not this week at any rate, where there does seem to be a good deal going on. Starting with Monday, December the 9th, there is a CPUC, that's the California Public Utilities Commission, evidentiary hearing in PG&E. Of course, the utility reached a $13.5 billion settlement with fire victims, as reported by the Wall Street Journal. And in Alta Mesa, there is a pre-trial conference and a trial in Houston, where it's a frigid 70 degrees. On Tuesday, December 10th, the aforesaid CPUC evidentiary hearing with regard to PG&E continues, and there are omnibus hearings in PHI and Alta Mesa and earnings from Cons and PetSmart. Wednesday, December 11th, yes, PG&E again with that same CPUC evidentiary hearing, and we also have a post-petition interest rates and omnibus hearing. And there are also hearings of the omnibus variety in Puerto Rico, Ageryon, Blackhawk, and Payless and more earnings. Staples, United Natural Foods, and Tailored Brands. Thursday, December 12th, again with the CPUC evidentiary hearing. Disclosure statement hearing in Verity, and in Sanchez, a hearing related to the Gavilan State Relief and an omnibus hearing. It's all very interesting. And also in PG&E, there are objections due to something called the Ghost Ship Stay Relief. That sounds interesting. And Friday, December 13th, Sears, a motion to dismiss or convert, and an omnibus hearing. There is, as it happens, a Sears store still open in the Houston area. It's up on North Shepherd. At least it was last time I drove by about two weeks ago. There are cars in the lot, people going in, and a help-wanted ad for an auto mechanic. And besides that, there's a second-day hearing and approach resources, and if you have evidence, then citizens, once again, the CPUC is there to hear it. And that is all from me. Mark and Peter, over to y'all. Thank you, Jim. So I'm back again with Peter Washkowitz, head of Reorg Covenants, and we're going to discuss some uh, recent trends in the primary market as it relates to uh, to Covenants. This is a segment we've been doing uh, every couple of months. Uh, so first, I just wanted to catch up, Peter, and uh, let's talk about uh, some trends since last we spoke. Uh, the last time we did speak, we talked a lot about uh, companies' flexibility to incur debt because they can meet leverage tests under their credit facilities' debt baskets, and uh, they're also permitted to use RP capacity to incur debt. Is that something that you're still seeing? Um, uh, hey, Mark. Uh, yeah. So it, it it not only is it a trend, it it's kind of become um, you know. So we I've looked at about you know let's say the last eight or nine new issuances, and some of them were private equity companies, and some were not. And about 80% of them, these companies were able to meet uh, the leverage test in the, their credit facilities basket at issuance. And so, it, you know, and so they were all able to ship, you know, the outstanding debt under their credit agreement uh, to those leverage baskets and, um, you know, and then, and then essentially give themselves a, a completely unused uh, credit facility basket. There was one issuance uh, two weeks ago, and this was a drive-by deal. Uh, for, it's a company... It's called Gates Corporation. Uh, it's a Blackstone company. Um, you know, they came out with the OM uh, in the morning, and it priced uh, later in the day. And um, you know, I, so at, at Rear, we, we kind of look at you know secured debt capacity, uh, RP capacity, transfer to unrestricted subsidiary capacity as a all as a percentage of EBITDA. And this drive-by um, was the most aggressive deal we've seen uh, we've seen this year. Um, and, and part of the reason, uh, there were actually two reasons here. Uh, one was that the company was able to, 
you know, reclassify credit facility debt as as leverage as uh, as uh, leverage based debt, and so it gave them at issuance a almost a four billion dollar credit facility basket. But um, another thing, and this is kind of a, a new ish trend. Um, it's not it's not particularly new, but we're I, I've been seeing it a lot more. Um, they, they were able to use uh, RP capacity for additional secured capacity, but the part of the RP covenant, their builder basket was a backdated uh, builder basket. So, you know, it was, it was based on 50% of CNI, but rather than, uh, you know, starting to build from issuance, this was based on uh, CNI from uh, three or four years ago. And so the builder basket um, at issuance gave the company uh, about $2.8 billion of additional capacity. So, um, you know, so this company I had never heard of before, um, it has, uh, it was able to, all, all told, was able to incur $8.5 billion of additional debt. Uh, its LTM adjusted EBITDA was $677 million, um, and that equates to 1,260% of that uh, LTM adjusted EBITDA. That's amazing. So it's you're just thinking through that. It's interesting because when you use sort of that past capacity, you know it's there, right? It's um, all you have to do is some calculations, you know, to figure it out. It's not like the company needs to achieve um, or grow anything uh, meaningfully. So when when you talk to uh, people, is is do you get the sense that uh, companies are just trying to you know? sneak stuff by them or is this out in the open and what's the purpose of um of, of doing things um, like these why wouldn't they just say here's another two billion dollars and just make a basket or make a basket just make a number up and um and say here we're gonna do this capacity instead of trying to hide this stuff yeah you know i mean i i, I kind of always i i think that myself but you know I think what it is is, you know, so in, in Gates Corporation, I mean, it, 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 it was very clear. I think it was actually even bold right after the builder basket. It said this basket, you know, currently provides $2.7 billion of capacity. But, I, you know, I, I don't. So, I mean, it's not like they're trying to hide the capacity. But what, you know, by allowing them to incur debt based on that amount, you know, so, so okay, so if you're an investor, you're saying, okay, well, so it's debt, and then they can't, you know, pay the dividend. But what they don't realize is, you know, that debt basket that allows that RP capacity to be used for debt, it also has a corresponding liens basket. So, um, you know, I, I would think investors kind of will, you know, they get comfortable with the numbers maybe, but they don't kind of realize that, okay, it's not only this number that's shifting over, but this number now has another basket, you know, in some other provision in the OM that allows it to be secured. So it's just, you know, I, 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 maybe it's just, you know, the, the, these, these investors are so worn down from trying to decipher all capacity that, you know, as long as it's just disclosed, they figure, okay, it's, you know, it's, it's not as bad as it could be. This company is at least telling me yeah. the capacity. Um, and then on the, the leverage uh, based basis, which you said that the companies are, um, are you know at uh, when when they do their issuance is that um, do they need some aggressive EBITDA addbacks um, you know to get to those um, those leverage numbers or within those um, tests or is it just straight um, EBITDA? I'm just trying to understand how reasonable uh, some of these leverage metrics are. Yeah, well, I mean, so no, I, I a quick answer, no. I mean, you know, a lot of these uh, a lot of these OMS these days are having you know they have a. Uh, they have just regular EBITDA, then they have an adjusted EBITDA, which has a number of addbacks, and then they have a pro forma adjusted e EBITDA. So, I mean, you're seeing, 
you know, from original EBITDA to pro forma adjusted EBITDA, I mean, it, it could be like triple the amount at some point. So, no, I mean, it, it's not uh, it, the the company's ability to meet these leverage tests is not really indicative of the company's overall leverage, just because it's so it's so you know artificially inflated with some of these addbacks. And and this isn't new. I mean, you and I have been talking about this for you know a okay. good year or two, and I've been seeing it before. But it's just you know the combination of it seemingly you know leverage tests going down and 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 you know adjusted EBITDA going up. It, it's just you know. Rare, rare is the day where I see a, uh, an OM where a company can't meet at least one leverage test to access, you know, be it a, a leverage-based RP basket, be it a, you know, credit facilities leverage basket. It's it's it's, it's becoming to the point where these companies, uh, you know, pretty much can meet most baskets just given these given these kind of addbacks, and, and, and these are kind of ongoing. You know, they have these cost-saving addbacks that they could just keep on doing. You know, every every year if they want to, and you know, obviously they're you know they have they're based on cost savings that are just reasonably anticipated to incur uh, to occur. Mm-hmm. So it's not even like they actually have to materialize as long as just people realize you know kind of in good faith think they're going to happen. And what what about pushback? Last time we spoke, I think there were a couple of companies, um, and it, it's been a couple of months, but um, there were a couple of companies that uh, the docs were so egregious that, and I think there were um, some private equity deals that you did get some pushback. Any um, any deals that um, that stick out in the last month or two that you saw investors push back on the covenants? Um, well, not really. I mean, we, you know, uh, there was a Wesco aircraft deal. Um, I, mm-hmm. I, I, it might have been Palladium Partners. I'm not sure about that. But, you know, that there was some pushback, but that was really more about, you know, allocation of debt. I mean, I think they ultimately uh, downsized the, uh, the the high yield issuance and upsized the credit facility, the, the, the bank debt component. But there really hasn't been anything uh you know, so uh, there haven't been any kind of notable deals that have that have faced a lot of uh, a lot of investor pushback. Now, I'll tell you one thing. I started um, about two or three weeks ago. I actually looked at a European deal. It was a Blackstone deal for Merlin Entertainment, and there, you know, they had a lot of super aggressive terms. They actually, it was the first uh, one of the first European deals that had the net short provisions, and so you know, I, I saw a lot of coverage from you know, a, a number of kind of research firms, you know, talking about how aggressive the terms were and, you know, how that they were just not that common in Europe. Uh, that deal evidently just sailed right through. I, 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 the terms stayed in. Uh, I know that, but it didn't even, it didn't even, from what I, I gathered, didn't really even face much pushback. I mean, they had a, you know, a debt based on two times RP capacity, which um, I have seen once or twice in the U.S., but that's gotten pushed back on here. Uh, in Europe, it just failed. It failed. It fell through. So, I mean, it, you know, this company has uh, they can incur debt based on two times their their capacity for dividends. So, um, it seems like there was a good amount of pushback in uh, you know in the middle of the year. There was, uh, I think, Allied Allied uh, Allied Universal. There was Sirius. There was Clarios. There was Advisor Group. Um, you know, a handful uh, um, surgery partners. But uh, I mean, since then, there really it's just kind of been few and far between that uh, that there's been you know any noticeable pushback at all. Hmm. What, what about uh, when you look across the the rating spectrum? I know that in the market, uh, in terms of issuance and um, how easy it is to to get a deal done at, at the right price, uh, there has been some 
this bifurcation in the market between higher rated credits and lower rated credits. Uh, are you seeing, you know, when, when companies come to market with a, a single B, triple C, uh, you know, whatever it might be in that lower end of the rating spectrum, do you see any differences in the type of covenants that they try and push through relative to a double B credit? Uh, yeah, I mean, I think, well, so, you know, there, there've been, I think it kind of, you know, I think it has a lot to do with, I guess, the size of the company, um, you know, and the rating. So, you know, when you see kind of a, a, a somewhat lower rated company with low EBITDA, yeah, I mean, the terms there are, are, are significantly more restrictive. Um, you know, they, they generally can't even incur uh, one times EBITDA worth of additional secured debt. Um, rare, you know, most of these deals allow at least, you know, one full turn of, of, of leverage. But, um Yes, yeah, so, I mean I think that has stuff that that has something to do with it. I, I, but then again, you know, we saw um, you know Twitter earlier this week came to the market. I think they're rated uh, BA two by uh, Moody's, and, and they had an investment grade package. And uh, you know that deal, I think, kind of you know it it, it went through uh, on time, no pushback. Um, and, and there, it, you know, it allowed the company to incur I think like seven billion dollars in secured debt and had no restrictions on you know dividends, RP RPs or unsecured debt. So. Um, I, I, I wouldn't say there's kind of anything really consistent uh, at all between, you know, in the, regardless of uh, ratings, regardless of size of company, regardless of size of the issuance. I see. But yeah, but BA2, though, that would be, um, you know, in the higher sort of double B equivalent um, rate. So that's... Um yeah, in the in the rating spectrum, I was I was wondering if in the, um, in the if you see anything in the triple C where if uh, you know companies try and push through uh, or companies try and push through any sort of indent uh, any covenants and there's just massive pushback on what they're allowed to do and um, yeah any sort of leeway that they have is just stopped immediately at the door. One other. Uh interesting i wouldn't say there's a this is a trend i mean i've seen it now in two oms in the last uh three weeks it, one was in uh maxar's first lean deal and then it was in this uh this small funeral parlor company uh carriage services who uh issued uh bonds earlier this week um both of those deals and, and this is kind of an issue that i don't think most people uh uh really appreciate and and there's kind of no reason why they should appreciate it it's a very uh esoteric issue but what it what both of those bonds uh, did is they allowed the company, uh, the issuers rather, to um, to sell assets and to the extent they use the proceeds from those asset sales to repay revolving debt, uh, you know, outstanding debt under their revolvers. It did not require the companies to uh, to reduce commitments by the amount of uh, any prepayment. Now, I mean, on, on its face, it sounds like kind of like you know a, a boring issue, but what it does is. It, it allows these companies to sell, let's say, a collateral asset, repay revolving debt, but still have access to the same amount of debt they had before, just with less collateral securing all that debt. Uh, I've been surprised that no one's really kind of putting up much of a fight with that. I mean, uh, you know, I get it's not as, as uh, you know, interesting an issue as uh, secured debt capacity or transfers to unrestricted subs. But, I mean, this, this gives companies a lot of flexibility to kind of, you know, use their revolver freely for, you know, let's say repaying other debt, and then they just sell assets and they, you know, repay that revolving debt but still have access to it. Um, I think, you know, who knows, but at some point, I think, you know, I think this, this could, you know, have some, some serious, uh, serious consequences if these companies kind of get in trouble and need to sell assets. 
but then still need that liquidity from the revolver and they would still have it, you know, with the, with, with these terms. I, again, this isn't, I haven't seen it in many deals, but I have seen it in two in the last three weeks. Uh, it, one was Maxar. It's a, uh, it's a satellite company. Uh, and the other was uh, it's carriage services. Uh, a funeral parlor yeah uh, thank you peter this this has been great um appreciate you sharing the uh, trends and i can't wait i guess next time we'll speak we'll be in uh, 2020 so uh curious to see what companies try and uh, push through then uh, appreciate it and have a very happy new year thanks mark and peter and thank you listener for tuning into another reorg weekly review as always, you can find all Reorg podcasts on our site's media page, iTunes, and SoundCloud. This has been The Week in Reorg, and I'm Raksha Manjanath.